This is the Helping Up Podcast, all about addiction, recovery, and grace. I'm Vic King, chaplain at Helping Up, and this is the story of Blue. Blue spent 52 years in active addiction and recently celebrated three years clean and sober. He's got an amazing story, and we hope you enjoy it. If you stick around to the end, you'll get to hear how he got the nickname Blue. Thanks for listening. Robert Miller. I'm known here as Blue. I'm 67 years old, and I've recently celebrated three years clean and sober for the first time in my life. I was born in Baltimore. Uh, I was born in 1950, June of 1950, and uh, I have seen a lot in my lifetime. and I've lived through a lot in my lifetime. What part of Baltimore did you grow up in? Uh, Lock Raven and Northern Parkway. Okay. Yeah, that's where I lived until I was 10 years old. And uh, both parents, one? Mother and father were both with me. All right. They're both deceased now. My and father was 85 and my mom died at 97. Yeah. Wow. Long live. <laughs> I turned 13 in 1963. Before I turned 13, I, I had found out about drinking on uh, the weekends. Me and my buddies, a couple of my friends, we would get some wine or beer or whatever, drink it, and uh, started smoking cigarettes at 12, too. And that went on for a couple of years. I went through a lot of different stuff back then because it was early in the, in the decade, and there was a lot going on. But when I turned 15, I was introduced to heroin. And that's the first time I shot up dope. So 1965. 1965. Can I ask how? It's a funny story. It was me and two two of my best buddies. We were known. We knew it. Or we called ourselves partners in crime. But his older brother was a heroin addict. And he his older brother turned him on to it. And he turned me on to it. First time I did it, I uh, went out because I didn't have any resistance. And when I came to, I was really, really, really high. And I was also got sick every five minutes, you know, because it made you like that. I went through three years of that. I still graduated from high school. I was 17. It was 1968. It was just the 60s. You know, I was a hippie. Um, this was the era of Vietnam with the draft. So... Guys like me and my friends didn't really have anything to look forward to. Right. None of us wanted to go to fight in some jungle somewhere, something that didn't make any sense. So uh, when I went down to the draft board, as a matter of fact, I was extremely high. <laughs> and uh, so I never got drafted. So did have did have one good side to it. So but, what was it like in your teens? What was it doing for you? What was it doing for me? Yeah. Well, I was a hippie, man. I was a hippie in the 60s. You know, I mean, I got high all the time. 
you know, it wasn't just heroin. It was uh, barbiturates, quaaludes, acid. Uh, it, it, I didn't start smoking weed till after I did dope. So it was like, you know, I was like 16 when I started smoking weed. So I got into hash and weed and hash oil and opium and all that stuff, man, you know. Right. This was a different era, you right. know. I remember where I was because Bill just asked me uh, where was I when Kennedy was assassinated. That's the only memory I have of the 60s. This is the truth. All right. I don't remember graduating from high school. I know I did because I had a diploma. There's little flashes, but I was high. I was high, you know, through the whole time. I mean, when I wasn't sleeping, I was getting high off of something. I mean, I smoked weed when I went to school and did dope when I went to school. My life in that world spanned 52 years. So it's like, you know, you get into uh, one short period of it. It's, it's just a short period of it to me. Right. The 60s were like the start. Right. It's like the first month, you know. In 68, 1968, I graduated from high school. A month later, I got busted for possession of heroin. I actually met my daughter's fa- uh, mother, cop and dope. I went to an apartment where they were living at, and the two guys they were living with were selling dope. So that's how I met her. My son was born in 72. My oldest daughter was born in 74. My youngest daughter was born in 76. My son is, I. we did not keep him. We put him up for adoption because both of us were strung out on dope. Um, I don't look back on my life with regrets uh, my daughters are doing fine. My son is a professor at Arizona. I felt that the best thing I could do for my children was to get out of their way. I wound up on methadone after I got busted. Okay. In the 70s? The first time in, in the 60s. 60s? 68. I told you I got busted in 68. In 68, there were no programs or nothing like that. My mother and father didn't have a clue what to do. They have an 18-year-old teenager that's doing heroin. My father was personnel director for Baltimore City Police Department at the time. So it's a little awkward, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. They started taking me to a psychiatrist. And he put me on 100 milligrams a day of methadone. He would write me a prescription every week. I'd go see him every Friday or whatever it was. He'd write a prescription. I'd go across the street to Rite Aids and get it filled take five of them. By the time I got home, I was knotted out. And I spent 10 years on methadone before I finally detoxed, slow detox. That's a part of my life because that was really the start of it. Altogether, I spent 29 years on methadone. So I've detoxed five times off the programs, which is pretty rare. It doesn't happen too often. And in 1978, both me and my wife were on methadone at the time. She wound up getting put off the program, so they did a 28-day or whatever detox on it. One weekend day, I was sitting in the kitchen, and my daughter, my oldest daughter came in there and told me the mommy's breathing funny. I went out there, and she was she had overdosed, and she had stopped breathing. And I gave her a artificial respiration for about a half an hour. I didn't have a phone, and... Uh, she finally started breathing again. I had to turn her over because she had swallowed a lot of fluid, vomit, because that kills a lot of people in overdose. Went around the corner and called an ambulance. They took her to Union Memorial Hospital. 
she wound up with uh, pneumonia from all the fluids that got in her lungs. She stayed in there for three days. But by that time, she was so sick, not just sick from having pneumonia, but sick detoxing off of methadone. She signed herself out. Four days later, she overdosed again, and I couldn't get her back. So she died. And uh, that's something I've had to deal with all my life. And my daughters grew up without a mom because of that, because they were one and three at the time. Hmm. What was her name? Loretta. Actually, it's my uh, granddaughter's name now. <laughs> wow. She even goes by Lori because uh, that's what everybody called her, Lori. That's part of my story. So you were raising the girls by yourself? At that time, yes. Living where? I was living on 25th Street uh, in a basement apartment. What kind of work were you doing? I've done a lot of things. I worked a lot of places. Um, I wound up an auto mechanic. Why, I don't know, because I really hate working on cars. To this day, I still wear my watch on the inside because I've had to replace so many crystals from hitting it against stuff. So Yeah. Yeah, got used to that. In 2000, I actually got hired by a company called Serco, and they had a contract with the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. I worked down there for three years. Uh, it, it was a very strange memory for me because uh, being a heroin addict and a crackhead, and all, you know, pretty much my whole life, um, me riding around in a police car, driving it was never something that would have been in my eyes, idea, you know. <laughs> right. Riding in the backseat, handcuffed. Yeah, been there, done that. But uh, Driving it? No. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was a strange thing because we'd work on the cars and then we'd take them out and test drive I jumped from one thing to another. I was either on a program, I was off the program, I was shooting dope. I wasn't shooting dope. I was drinking because I would go to that because, you know, I didn't want to do dope because I'd get strung out on it. And I mean, I'd always wind up doing it again, but I'd go to something else. Drinking was legal. I smoked a lot of weed. I, well, I can't remember a whole lot of it. But <laughs> you, you, you were always, you pretty much always using something. Oh, always. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I've often told people that it, it, that's why I say I got high for 52 years. I didn't get high off of any one thing for 52 years, but right. I was getting high off of something for 52 years. And I never had three months where I didn't get high at least a couple times. And that was early on. I mean, after that, you know, once I got into dope, I was either on methadone or I was shooting dope or I was drinking. I was doing something every day, you know, and that's yeah. what I did. Uh, when I turned 50, which was in 2000, I was down to D.C., and uh, I drank. I would get up, I'd go in the refrigerator, take two beers, drink them both. Then I'd go in the bathroom, brush my teeth, get ready for work. And I'd get in the car, and I'd drive from Baltimore to D.C., working the police car. So I did that for three years. Uh, along the way, probably the last year or so that I worked down here, I started getting the shakes. And I didn't have a clue what the shakes were. I didn't, I never experienced anything like that. Hmm. Uh, my handwriting got really bad. And eventually they got to the point where you couldn't, I mean, I couldn't even sign my name. And I was like, you know. Well, anyway, I wound up, they sent me out one day. I, I had went out with a friend of mine that night and got introduced to uh, Overproof Rum. And uh, 
I had a pint of uh, Black Label Vodka, which is the hundred proof that I had with me at uh, where I was staying at. So after drinking that, partying all night, I got to sleep about three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. I, before I went to sleep, I drank half of the damn pint. And I had a Coke bottle. And what I would do, I would drink half the Coke or pour half of it out, pour the vodka in and fill it up. Cap, and that's what I would sip all day, keep from getting the shakes. Well, like I said, that caught up with me. They sent me down. I had like a point three five, three seven, some ridiculous amount of alcohol in my system. I wound up losing my job there. And then I found out what it was like to be homeless. That was interesting. And you were homeless around where? I actually I was sleeping in my car at first. Okay. My car was taken eventually. I actually set up a little thing between two buildings that were close together with a piece of plywood over top. And I found four chairs in a dumpster that had padding on them, and I lined them up in a row, and that's what I slept on. I think I told you the story that I lived in a hearse. I moved into the back of a hearse. About a year after living out like that, I was across the street. This is on the west side. I was across the street from a funeral home, and there was an old hearse parked on the parking lot of the funeral home, and it was never moved. So it was broke down. And uh, one day I went over there, and I was trying the doors. They were all locked, and just for the heck of it, I went around and tried the back door where they loaded the bodies. Hey, I got a home. <laughs> so uh, I moved into there. I also uh, almost froze to death on Christmas Eve there in 2005 or four or something like that, 2004. Hmm. I was so uh, dope sick. I didn't have any money. Wasn't no dope. Nobody, nobody, nobody was out selling any drugs because it was like 10 degrees out. I went into the back of the hearse. I covered up with everything, every piece of clothing and blanket that I had. And I lay there. And I I got so cold. And I never forgot that. And I, that was so uh, when somebody says they got bone cold, I understand what that means. Yeah. And it was pretty bad. Uh, eventually, I got up and I went over to uh, this carryout and I sat in there try to warm up. And basically, I just sat there and shivered. And eventually, one of the guys told me I had to leave. And I was walking down the street and there was a lady that worked in in there as a barmaid. She called me over and uh, saw I was really distressed and brought me in. They put me on the couch, covered me up with blankets, had a heater on me, and uh, I got to sleep. I finally warmed up and got to sleep. And next morning, they gave me some money, and I went down and got my dope, took care of business. And it's kind of ironic because the guy, her boyfriend, was killed a month later because uh, he was selling drugs. You know, It's quite a Christmas. Yeah, it's quite a Christmas. Quite a Christmas. Yeah, I remember that very well. It's not something I'm trying to go back to ever. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. When I see the guys coming overnight, I know what it's like. I've been yeah. there, and it's rough. I understand. So that was 13 years ago. What made you decide you were finally done after 50 um, years? January 6th of 2014. I was in such bad shape from drinking because, I mean, I was doing some hard, really, really hard drinking. I went to Bayview. I actually went to a couple other places and, and, you know, 
try to get off of uh, drinking. And they would put me on Libriums and so on. First place I went, they put me on a banana bag. I was so dehydrated. That's how bad off I was. I had not been, I couldn't eat anymore and I couldn't drink any fluids. I was just drinking vodka. That was it. Beginning of 2014, I went into Bayview Detox. I walked into Bayview Detox. And five days later, they wheeled me out on a, on a stretcher because I couldn't walk no more. I literally lost the ability to, to walk. Hmm. I had on one of those hospital gowns. And uh, I remember I lifted the sheet up and I looked at my legs. And my legs were about that big around. I mean, at the thigh, literally just wow. that, that small. And I was like, you know, because for a couple of years, I had basically lived in what I had on. And I mean, you know, I didn't. it didn't matter. And uh, I weighed 115 pounds. I'm six foot tall. I have no business weighing 115 pounds. I was in really bad shape, you know. I went back out, drank again. And uh, September of 2014, nine months later, I uh, got up one morning. I took two Libriums and two Valiums. I had five hours in my pocket. Walked up to the liquor store, bought a pint of can't think of the name of the vodka now. Doesn't matter. Cheap vodka. <laughs> They're all the same. And a Coke. Went outside the door because I had shakes real bad, you know. And I opened them both. Took a big swallow of the vodka and swallowed a Coke, washed it down. Started walking. Got to the top of the hill. And I'm going to put the top on the bottle. The bottle's empty. I finished the whole damn pint off. Don't remember doing it. And then I don't remember anything after that, like two or three in the afternoon. This was in the morning. I came to, I was on a stretcher, and they would put me in an ambulance. <laughs> I was like, um, <laughs> what's going on? They took me to St. Agnes. My wife followed us down in the car. Now, when did you meet your second wife? I don't know if I've ever heard that story. Well, we both lived in the Knowings Mills. Okay. She just happened to move next door to me. All right. I actually met her through her son. She's been a single mother for a long time, and she had to deal with a lot of stuff. She had to work, you know. Right. Her son, she he would go to school. He went to school right down the street. He'd knock on the door one day. <laughs> I'm like, open the door. There's this little black kid standing at my door. And I'm like, okay, um, can you take me to school? <laughs> well, you know, I took him to school, you know. So the next day... It happened again. And I'm like, you know, oh, so I ran into his mother that afternoon. And, you know, I, I thought that she knew that I took him to school for two days, you know. But uh, apparently not. She didn't. He hadn't told her. Well, anyway, me and, me and Pauline, that's my wife, got along pretty good. And then, uh, eventually we wound up getting married. Yep. Married 17 years now. All right. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah I loved, loved getting to meet her. At your graduation. Yeah, she's a cool lady. Now, I, I have to say this because uh, you were there at the, at the graduation. When I graduated yeah. in, in 2015, my wife was in the, in the aisle taking the pictures. You know that now when I made my speech up there, that I never said a word about my wife, who was sitting, who was standing right out here taking pictures, but I didn't mention her. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm mentioning her now. All right? <laughs> Thank you. For sticking with you for 17 yeah, years. Yeah. So back to when you were getting uh, loaded up on a stretcher in 2014. It took me to uh, St. Agnes. 
trying to stop drinking. First, they would do blood tests and all that, and then they would, one time they put me on the EKG, and, all, and eventually they just said, just the doctor said, just write him a prescription for for Libriums. He's okay. You know, just give him a prescription for Libriums. So <laughs> it's funny. Um, here, my wife brought me down here that Friday. The social worker at St. Agnes knew about the help and mission. Her husband had, was an alcoholic or is an alcoholic. Actually came in here. He did not stay, but she advocated the help and up mission because that's what she told my wife. You need to take him to the help and up mission. That's where he needs to be. How'd you feel about that? I didn't care. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was a, I was, I was okay at that point, you know. Right. You were but, stabilized. Uh, you know, but I mean, you uh, bear in mind, I had a seven-hour blackout, drunk as hell, right. and I literally, I t- they, you know, people I know told me I fell down the steps a couple times and stuff like that. It's a funeral, okay? That's not a good scenario. Right. <laughs> you you're, know? you're right there on the edge. Yeah. You know, falling so, into a casket. Yeah, whatever. I don't know what I did. So <laughs> I didn't know anything about the helping up mission at all. And uh, I have spent so many years on programs and counseling and group therapy and all that stuff. And uh, I really uh, didn't care about any of it. It was just a holding pattern. I wanted to get high. Right. When I got here in 2014, um, SRP, Spiritual Recovery Program, uh, okay, what is that? Don't know, you know. But while I was here, to begin with, um, Dr. Jordan was working. Yeah. And I saw Dr. Jordan because she would see all of us. We talked about different things, and I told her about my wife, my the mother of my daughters dying from an overdose. I was coming off of alcohol and, and benzos, so I was as emotional as you could get. You know, I mean, literally, you look at me funny, I would cry. <laughs> right. You know? So Dr. Jordan explained what the place was, that it's a spiritual recovery program. I did not understand that because I really never thought about anything from a spiritual point of view. I always thought about it from a mental and physical point of view, period which is exactly what the programs were that I spent all those years on, mentally and physically. Physically, we'll put you on methadone. Mentally, we'll, we'll have group therapy and counseling meetings, you know. And uh, my entire life, I have been an agnostic. I had never considered myself an atheist because I just did not know. But I could not explain this actually was put to me here. Lady came in and talked about this. Um, I can understand God. I can understand a child molester, but I can't understand them together. Right. That was I Diane. just don't get it. Yeah. yeah you, Diane remember, you were there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I really liked that because it's like, you know, I had stopped questioning God. Why is this stuff going on? Why is this happening? It's just been a relief not to have to fight, not to have to understand. I don't have to understand. I know what I know. I learn what I can. I help whoever I can. I do the best I can. 
So that's good enough. <laughs> Chris Mann came to the Sunday meeting I do the list uh, yesterday or day before yesterday, and uh, we've had a lot of discussions about Christianity and God and so on. And uh, I've always told Chris the same thing now because I have tremendous faith. I have no religion, but I have tremendous faith in God. I've seen what he can do since I came here. That's why I do what I do on the chapel, in the graduation ceremonies every every Friday. I was going to ask you about that. So just, you know, for those who don't know, just, you're usually sitting on the inside row. I there. always sit in the same spot. Same spot. <laughs> and uh, every yeah. week that we have a graduate or yeah. graduates that are walking up, you know, in the midst of thunderous I applause, yep. you jump up and give them a hug. What's 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 behind that? I uh, don't know, really know how that started, but I, I feel very strongly emotionally about what's happening here. And when a guy comes in here, I know what it what it took for me to do it to come in here and go for a year, not changing anything. But the first thing I thought when they said this was a year-long program, I was standing at the 29 desk, oh, no, I'm gone. I headed to the door. The only reason I came back is because my wife stayed at the 29 desk and stared at me. So I, I walked <laughs> back with my tail between my legs and stayed. All right, so I've been out there for so many years. And I've seen how this struggle is with drugs and alcohol. And to me, a year is a miracle. So, yes, I hug them guys when they make that year. Because you started something and you finished it. And we don't do that a lot. (laughs) You know what I mean? We're really good at starting things and not finishing them. Or just putting it off because we don't want to do it. So. What surprised you at the start of the program when you were coming in? Because you've been in a ton of programs. I No, I just, uh, I, man, I mean, you know, I didn't sleep for like three or four months. I was coming off alcohol and benzos, man. I mean, I I used to lay up in the bunk and close my eyes and just watch the strobe lights until I fell asleep because, I mean, you know. But it took three or four months. So, but alcohol, man, you know, you uh, that's your life. That's all you do. You're drinking, and you drink, and you keep drinking. You drink until you pass out. You wake up, you drink, you go about your business, you drink, and you drink, and you drink until you pass out, start another day. Uh, Unfortunately, if you don't eat or actually sleep, because that's not a sleep when you pass out from being drunk, you're not sleeping. It's not restorative. It's not at all. And uh, when you don't eat, your body starts eating itself. And, you know, it's uh, the toll it takes on your mind, it's pretty amazing. And it really is. And the only reason you can do that is because you're drunk. You don't think. So what started to change for you? Stop like, fighting God, man. I came to terms with it. I mean, it really, it, it sounds like something you would say here. Because it sounds so good, but it really doesn't have anything to do with that. Not having to fight and, you know, try to understand something I cannot understand. I'm more concerned now with the death rate of people doing heroin, Hmm. fentanyl, than I have anything else. 
I've known a lot of people now in the last three years that I've known that are gone now. And I mean, I'm a lot. I'm talking a lot, yeah. you know. People I really uh, came to like, you know. I'm just like, you know, go for it, man. You're doing all right. The person died from a do- overdose? Are you serious? Yeah. So what's kind of animating you now? How would you describe kind of your sense of purpose? What gets you up in the morning? What gets you excited? That's very simple, Vic. Pure recovery. I'm a peer. I'm dealing with recovery. I'm trying to do that for other people. That was the point that I came to understand and believe. God kept me around through all that stuff. And I mean, there's, there's drugs I did that I didn't, I haven't talked about that they don't even sell anymore. You know, they don't make them anymore. I used to shoot them. It's insanity. But God let me survive all that. So what's what's the purpose? How can you take your life? I'm 67 years old. I've spent 52 of those 67 years getting high off of everything. So I, I can either look at my life in two ways. I've wasted my whole life. Or no, I've put 55, you know, 52 years in. And hard experience to understand stuff nowadays that I'm dealing with people. So yeah, I choose the second one. Right. <laughs> you know. To to see I mean to see it as in a sense like preparation for what you're doing now. It well, it definitely is. I have uh, you know, those twenty nine years that I was on the programs, I've had different counselors. The ones I really could talk to and get along with the best were the ones that understood because they did it, they'd experienced it themselves. I'm not saying that people that are not drug addicts or alcoholics cannot help or understand because that's far from the truth. But at the same time, when you're talking to somebody that's coming in, you have a better, much better chance of reaching through them if they know that you've been through it yourself. So I don't have to fight that fight. You know, you're a heroin addict. Okay. I know all about that. You're a crackhead? Okay, I know all about that. You're an alcoholic? All right, yeah, I know all about that too. All right. <laughs> Which way you want to go with this, you know? But that's, you know, that's pretty much where I'm at. Yeah, so describe just a little bit more what kind of things you're doing now. What's your, you're an intern, you're a graduate intern. I'm a graduate intern. I was a peacekeeper intern for over two years. I went from housekeeping to the overnight shift. One of the things I did in here while I was working that shift, they had the uh, peer recovery specialist class yep. over here. And I definitely signed on for that. It opened up a world that I've been looking to happen for a long, long time. Just on my own experience, I know that the peer advocacy is the way to go. Because we need guys because for both ways. If you're doing that, you're more likely to stay on the road you're on because you're doing it. And the guys you're dealing with, you're more likely to be able to help them Absolutely. because of the same thing. You know, I see you engaging with guys and you, you've, you've I've got talked to everybody in this yeah, place, man. You, you've got a, you've got a real presence, you know, on, on the campus combination of your gigantic Santa Claus beard and your, uh, <laughs> 
and your nickname, yeah. you know. It's not as and, big uh, as it was, Vic. It's like yours. That's that's true. That's yeah. true. But uh, but but no, I mean, much beyond that, your your de- your demeanor, your approachability, your the respect that I see you give guys, even I do relatively new guys, is really kind of dignifying and empowering thing. Well, a lot of times it's you know, just somebody saying something to you makes a difference. And I am a firm believer that it's the small things in life that make the difference, not necessarily the big ones. The big ones are going to happen to everybody. The little ones are gifts. So when somebody talks to you and they actually care, it's something you remember. And it can make a huge difference in the rest of your day and might make a difference in the rest of your life. It might be the difference between life and death. That's the case now. And that's kind of uh, frightening to think about, but that's really what we're dealing with, you know. So that's what you try to do? Yeah. So do what I can. Beautiful. Well, uh, any other kind of stories or thoughts come top of mind? Man, I got a million stories. (laughs) I know. (laughs) How about this then? How about this? The story you you shared of 2004, your 2004 Christmas, almost freezing to death in the back of a hearse. I almost did. To today, not only with a warm bed yeah. and hot meals, but with with a sense of purpose and, and a real a real ability to to speak encouragement into the lives of other of other guys. Don't you think that that was kind of God's point? It sure seems like it. <laughs> it sure yeah. seems like it yeah. to me too, man. You know, what would you want people to to take from your story? Oh God, man, it's, it's such a long story. The only thing I can really tell people, man, life's still going to happen. You're still going to go through bad stuff, and you're going to go through good stuff. That's everybody. There's no getting away from that. You, you can't escape it. The difference you have when you have faith in God, first place that makes a difference in the mental side because you have that. It's hard to explain. It's like a, a wall, okay? You have that to protect you. So you're not alone. Isolation is the big enemy. We know that. Get in our own own heads and think our own thoughts and isolate doesn't lead well. But I can tell people for real that the difference in living your life, clean and sober and recovery, is so amazing. It really is. That if a guy like me can come in here at the age of 64 after spending 52 years out there getting high on everything, can sit here today and be at peace with himself and his life and not be ashamed of his life story because it's it's his life story, then you can too. It's pretty simple. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for opening up. I appreciate you already knew I was going to do that. I know. I appreciate you, Blue. Can I move this thing now? Can, can I? Can I? Can I say ahead, one man. thing? <laughs> you, you're my boy, Blue. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. Okay, quick story. No, I'm an emotional person, so you know I'm not ashamed of it. Um, when I first came in here, I got the name Blue. I told you how I got the name Blue. I think I've told you before. I'm always wearing a blue shirt, right? No, blue you know, jeans. No. I got no. nothing, man. You don't. You really don't know the story. <sighs> no. All right. I'm gonna tell the story. Enlighten me. Uh, back in 2000, thereabouts, I was copping crack from two teenagers out on up on the west side, of Baltimore. 
And when I was walking away, walking very fast, of course, because I was holding, when I'm hollered out, which one of the Blues Brothers are you? I just kind of shook my head and kept walking because I was holding. I wanted to get back and do what I was going to do. But there were people in the area that heard that. And the next day when I came up there, somebody called me Blue. It kept spreading around the neighborhood. And people that started calling me Blue. It does not have anything to do with old school because I had never seen the the movie. <laughs> that was before that even came out. It was before yeah. that came out. It has to do with the Blues but Brothers. When I, it has to do with the Blues Brothers, which is, doesn't really make any sense because I don't look like any anybody in the Blues Brothers. The answer to your question is it doesn't have anything to do with the color blue. But you do like the color I blue. I do like the color blue. But uh, my music is the blues. And I love the blues. And that's, you know, that's why I kept the, the name. When I first came here, the night I, first night I went up on the roof as an applicant and sat down at the bench up there with three or four other guys who were sitting there. Introduced myself. I was trying to get a cigarette. And I said, my name is Robert Miller because I had an applicant badge and never name one. But people call me Blue. And it just by chance, that's how God works. Pearly Blue was sitting at the same table. <laughs> so he jumped up and ran around to the top of the roof. We got another Blue! <laughs> awesome. So, so yeah, it was pretty wild. You know. Thank you, Blue. All right, bro. Love you, man. <laughs> When my body won't hold me anymore And it finally lets me free Will I be ready When my feet won't walk another mile And my lips give their last kiss goodbye Will my hands be steady when I lay down my fears, my hopes and my doubts The rings on my fingers and the keys to my house With no hard feelings When the sun hangs low in